chapter 1, we're reading, we're starting a new series of sermons on the book of Jonah. This morning we're reading the first chapter. Jonah chapter 1, this is a reading of God's word. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went out to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. There was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and he had laid down to, and was fast asleep. So the captain said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lot that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lot and the lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where have you come from? What is your country? Of what people are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he has told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you, that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said, Pick me up. Throw me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, has done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah, hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered up a sacrifice to the Lord, and they made vows to him. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Amen. This is a reading of God's word. Please join me in prayer. Father, thank you for your word, which always comes to us in a timely way. You pray that your word would be life, your word would be light, your word would be a guide, your word will wake us up if we're spiritually asleep this morning. Pray that your word would lead us ultimately to your son, Jesus. We pray this in his name, amen. Amen. Well, if you just join us, we, are, we uh, just finished a five-part series on the book of Ruth. And starting this morning, we are looking at Jonah. And the reason I decided to put these two series back to back, Ruth and Jonah, is that I think they're very great, they're they're great contrasts. They're great contrasts. Ruth was a positive example. She is a positive, beautiful person who teaches us uh, how to live a life of love. She's a positive model for love, for faithfulness to God. And Jonah's the opposite. Jonah teaches us that all of us have a dark side in life all of us have a shadow side and he's a negative example of how not to live 
You know, sometimes uh, we need both positive and negative examples. Um, this summer, this last uh, this summer, uh, my uh, we converted one of the rooms in our house into a bedroom for my oldest daughter. It was a lot of work. I didn't do most of that work, but during that time, uh, my daughter picked out all new furniture. And guess who had to make all that furniture? I mean, I I had spent hours putting together these furnitures. And most of the furniture instructions are like just pictures. It's a book of like pictures of like how to construct the furniture. And sometimes the the pictures would have a picture of like a man hammering a nail into one side of uh, one side of the furniture, and it'd be like a giant X on it. Be a giant X on it. And I read that, I'll be like, man, I was just about to do that exact thing. That just that X just saved me like three hours of doing the wrong thing. You know, sometimes negative things, negative examples and instructions, they can be actually more helpful than positive ones. If the Bible only had positive examples, people like Ruth, it would be difficult because it might be hard to relate. You know, none of, who, who of us are perfect like Ruth and live that kind of life of love like Ruth? Sometimes that's why the Bible, for the most part, gives us negative examples of how not to live. Uh, Jonah, as we're going to see, had all kinds of issues. He was angry. He was hypocritical. He was deeply racist. He had all kinds of issues in him. And what, what, what we want to see throughout this book of, of Jonah is that God loves Jonah. I mean, God loves Jonah just as much or more than Ruth. God has a deep love for Jonah. And what God is doing in Jonah's life is he's taking him on a journey. You know, if you want to be a person of faith, you have to go on a journey with God. Jonah's on this big, long journey he's taking with God. And this morning, we're getting started on this journey. Uh, Jonah is on a journey, but this journey starts all wrong. Today, we're going to talk about this idea of running from God and how, like Jonah, many of us are tempted or are presently running from God. This story is about how God brings Jonah back home. This whole story, this whole journey is one man running from God and how God is leading him back home. So as we start this series, I want to just look at three things. I want to look at how Jonah ran from God. Secondly, how God turns him around and how ultimately he shows Jonah his heart and his love. Uh, Those three things. And I want to start with this idea of running from God. Today we're looking at the book of Jonah. Jonah was a prophet who lived in the 8th century. And prophets in the Bible were people who were given the word of God. There's something called the prophetic formula. The prophetic formula is basically God says to the prophet a message. And the prophet says to the people, thus says the Lord. God gives the prophet a message. And the message, a messenger, the prophet, repeats that word for the people. So here at the outset of of Jonah chapter 1, Jonah is a prophet. He receives a word from God. What is that word? It says in verse 1, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for the evil has come up before me. Jonah the prophet is given his assignment. The prophet is always given a word from God, and God gives him the word. And he says to Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh, that great city. 
It's a surprising assignment and surprising word for a few reasons. The first reason is that it was outside of Israel. Almost always a prophet was given a word for his own people, Israel, Judah. It was given, he was given a word for his own people. But this Nineveh, the city of Nineveh, was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. Uh, essentially, Jonah would be a missionary outside. Secondly, this is a surprising word because this is not any city. Nineveh was the capital of the Syrian Empire, which was known to be a brutal uh, estate. Uh, they were uh, the 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 nation of Assyria were, was known. Nahum, the other prophet during this time, calls this city a city of crime, utterly treacherous, full of violence. He says that in Nahum chapter three. He says this city was known to be a city of crime. And full of violence. The Syrian Empire was known to be brutal. They would do crazy things like uh, burning children alive. One scholar calls Assyria a terrorist state. They were a terrorist state. The worst possible place. Finally, on top of all that, the Assyrians were enemies of Israel. In fact, later on, they would conquer it and deport most of its citizens. So you can understand... Why Jonah had hesitations with this assignment. Imagine if you were a missionary and you were thinking about places to go to spread the gospel. And one day God tapped you on the shoulders and said, hey, go. I want, I want you to go on mission. I want you to move your whole family to the Middle East. And I want you to be a missionary to ISIS. Like that, that's your mission. What would you say to God? If that was me, I'd be like, God, uh, can I think I have a heart for Japan. <laughs> Lord, uh, you gave me a love for sushi. And man, Japan has a lot of non-Christians in it. It's like 1%. Like, God, send me, send me somewhere else. There's a little more comfortable. You can understand the trepidation. Because if you were a missionary there in a place like that, there's a great likelihood that you might die. There's a great likelihood that, that, that you might die. And also, you might have great grievance against them for their hostilities to us as a country. Jonah felt all of those things. Later on, we find out that Jonah simply hated the Ninevites. He harbored all kinds of hostility against them. So what does Jonah do? He doesn't want to go. What does he do in verse 3? It says he goes to the nearest port, Joppa, and he takes a ship. And this ship is not just going anywhere. It's going to Tarshish, which is geographically in the opposite direction of Nineveh. Jonah takes a one-way ticket to the opposite side of the world in his time of Nineveh. And not only that, it says in verse 3, not only was Jonah not running away from his mission, but in verse 3 it says he was running away from what? From the presence of the Lord. Uh, Jonah was not just running from his mission, he was running from God. This prophet of God has gotten, gone AWOL. He is fleeing the presence of God. What do you do when God tells you something that you don't want to do? You know, what do you do in seasons of your life where God is pressing you to do something and you do not want to do it? What do you do? Well, uh, one answer, one biblical answer is argue with God. 
Think about Moses. I said Moses. Moses is the great, greatest prophet. He's the first and greatest prophet. He's the template for how a prophet should operate in Exodus. The first, the greatest, the archetype of a prophet. And what happened to Moses when he was given an assignment he did not want either? Moses was given the assignment to say to Pharaoh, let my people go that they might worship me. Imagine if you were given an assignment to go tell the most powerful person in the world that you want them to let their free labor force go. That's not a great assignment. Moses didn't like that. And so what did Moses say to God? Instead of running from God, Moses said to God, God, I don't want to do it. And here's why. And he gave him all these lists of reasons. He says, if I say that, Pharaoh won't believe me. Who am I? Secondly, I don't even know your name. Third, I have a speech impediment. I'm not qualified. I'm not gifted to speak that to Pharaoh. And Moses had a list of grievances, and he argued with God about that. What did God do? Well, God answered Moses. He said, Moses, I I totally understand all your concerns, and here's what I'm going to do. You say Pharaoh won't believe you. I'm going to give you miracles to do. I'm going to have you turn the, the, the Red Sea into blood. I'm going to give you a staff that miraculously turns into a snake. I'll give you signs and wonders, Moses. Moses, I know that you have some physical limitations of speaking. I'm going to send your brother with you, Aaron. He's eloquent. He can speak for you. He can be with you. And God gave Moses all of these assurances and promises and support until Moses felt so filled up that he was willing and ready to go. What do you do with your questions and your problems and your doubts? Jonah, instead of arguing with God and bringing that up to God, what did he do? He simply left. It says that in verse 3, instead of speaking with God and struggling with God, in verse 3, he left first opportunity he had. And what we see is that it says in verse 3, and and it's geographically, physically, and spiritually uh, very important, this word, it says he went down. First, he went down to Joppa. Secondly, he went down to the ship. And third, it says he went down into sleep. He went down to sleep. And physically and spiritually, he's going down, down, until he's down and out. And this is not an ordinary sleep that he's sleeping in. Uh, it's such a deep slumber that there is, his ship is about to get capsized, and yet Jonah is still sleeping. Some scholars suggest this is not an ordinary sleep, but it's a way also for Jonah to escape. Jonah is escaping even as he sleeps. Have you ever been so stressed out at work, so stressed out with your family, that you just want to be in front of a TV and just zone out? Have you ever been so plagued by problems, you just want to uh, binge on Netflix? You want to get the fattiest food you can and just eat all of it all at once? There's so many ways we try to escape our problems in life. Entertainment, binge on food, uh, Netflix, and we just try to forget all of our problems. And that's what Jonah's doing. Jonah's like, forget it. Wake me up when it's over. I'm just, I'm out of here. I'm going to go down to sleep. I'm going to try to forget all that is plaguing me. 
And in those ways, he was running from God. And, and in a similar ways, many of us do the same things. What do you do with your questions, your doubts, your struggles? Are you, are you engaging God with them? Some of us have sins in our life that we know that are problems. But instead of confessing it, having people help with it, we just ignore it. We're just like, I'm just going to let it go. I'm not going to address it. I'm not going to think about it too much. Many of us are spiritually asleep. We're spiritually asleep, just like Jonah. We're in that ship, and we're just somewhere else. Our mind and our spirit, we're not pursuing the heart of God. We're not trying to be like God. We're asleep in the ship. But the problem is this. The ship's going down. I mean, we can ignore the problem all we want, but there's a storm coming. The ship is going down. We, we have to, at some point, address all of the issues in our life and bring them before God. Jonah is asleep. He is running from God. But here's the second point. God loves Jonah. He loves us. And God wants to turn Jonah around. God wants to turn Jonah around. God is pursuing us. You know, all throughout the Bible, uh, there is this idea of the prodigal. And that comes actually from the parable that Jesus gives uh, throughout the Gospels. And there is a parable about a son. We call him the prodigal son. Because he, after getting, forcing his hand, his father's hand, to give him his inheritance, he skips town. And he wastes his whole inheritance. We call that uh, the prodigal son. But you know, all throughout the Bible, there are people who run from God who are prodigals. We see that with Jacob. All throughout the Bible, every single family, actually, if you study the, the Bible, every family in the Bible has a prodigal son. Every single one of them, including God. And all of us are, have a tendency to run from God's presence, to run away from the things that God wants for our lives. But the second thing is this. God pursues us. God doesn't let us go. Jonah is running from God's presence, but God won't give up on Jonah. So what does God do? How does God bring us back? Well, the first thing is this, is God sends a storm. Jonah is uh, having a great time. He is escaping. He's sleeping. And God, it says in verse 4, sends a great wind. And this is not an ordinary storm. Notice that these sailors are experienced. They know all about storms, but they are scared to death. What is, ha- is happening? This is not an ordinary, it's a supernatural storm. And it is, it is imperiling all of their lives. God sends a storm. Storms are, uh, storms are things that God often sends in our lives to wake us up. Uh, we might experience storms in our life like losing a job, a health scare, some uh, people that we love around us who are hurting. Not all storms are because of a specific sin or because we are running from God. That's not always the case. But often God works in our life when we're running to him through a storm. And storms wake us up. Storms, in, in a storm, we realize that we are not the people who we thought we were. In a storm, we realize that we, we really need God, that we're not as independent as we had thought. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus tells a parable about two houses that they both look amazing. They both look great. But one house is built on sand and the other is built on a a rock, a solid foundation. They both look beautiful. They both look amazing. But then what happened? A storm 
a storm comes. The winds and the waves beat up against it, and the house that's built on sand collapses, while the house built on a rock stands firm. You know, the storms in our life, they reveal who we really are. Uh, do we really have faith? Do we really know God? Sometimes God sends a storm to wake us up that we're not the people who we thought we were, to wake us up to the presence of God. I have a friend, a pastor friend, who was telling me a story about a guy in his church. Uh, he was married to a Christian woman, but he was not Christian. He was from Europe. And he was a diehard atheist, didn't believe in God at all, but just came to church just, just for his wife and his, and his daughter. But his newborn daughter was diagnosed with a rare eye condition, and they thought, uh, they thought their daughter would lose their sight for the rest of their lives. And he was broken by that. And he said for the first time in his life, he started to pray. And he realized there's, he thought before that he was in control of his life. And in that storm, he realized, I am actually not in control of anything. I need someone, something outside of myself because I cannot handle it. And in the midst of that storm, he called upon God. He came to a deep, deep faith and belief. You know, in the storms of life, we begin to realize our desperate need for God and who God really is. God often sends storms to wake us up. But there's a second thing that wakes Jonah up. And that second thing is actually, uh, it's, it's a radical thing that is unexpected. The second thing that God sends to Jonah to wake him up are unbelievers. Are unbelievers. This is what happens in verse 5. We see that there's a great storm and the sailors, they're alarmed. They had never seen a storm like this in life. They start to unload their cargo. They said, what is the use of stuff if we're not going to live to enjoy it? And this storm gives them perspective. It's not about stuff. It's not about my money. It's not about my stuff. What is that if I'm not going to live to enjoy it? But then something else happens in verse 6. It says, the captain goes up to Jonah and says, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God, the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish now this was a non-christian he had his own gods and his own nation but he wakes jonah up and says jonah wake up what why are you sleep we're about to die jonah and what does he say to jonah he says to jonah who is a prophet the man of god he says jonah you need to pray you need to pray to your god that he might save us there's he is the irony is that he's a non-christian man And he's telling the man of God, you need to pray. Jonah, wake up. Pray. He was supposed to be a man of God. He's supposed to be a man of the word. He's supposed to be a man of prayer. But here this non-Christian is, he's telling Jonah to pray. Secondly, the sailors up on board, they are also in a panic. And they cast lots, which is the ancient way to figure out what's happening. Falls on Jonah. So they bring Jonah up. And they grill Jonah. Like, Jonah, we know it's you. Where are you from? What are you doing? And Jonah tells them essentially who he is and who God is. It says in verse 10 that the men were exceedingly afraid. What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Remember, Jonah was a missionary, this man of God, but when 
they hear what Jonah has done. They're, they say to Jonah, Jonah, you got messed up. I can't believe, Jonah, what you did. You try to run from God? That's crazy. Even these non-Christian sailors, they're rebuking Jonah for what he's doing. Even they know Jonah has messed up. He shouldn't be doing that. Finally, Jonah comes up with a radical solution. Jonah says, I know it's me. Jonah's beginning to wake up, by the way. He's like, I know it's me. I put you all in danger. Throw me overboard. That's going to do it. I know it's me. I know the storm came because of my rebellion. So throw me overboard. You'd think the sailors would be like, all right, we'll throw you overboard. I mean, you're the problem. Uh, We're all innocent here. Okay, it's your suggestion? Yes, we'll do that. You know, you think the sailors would do that, but guess what? They don't do that. It says in verse 13 that the sailors don't want to throw him out. They actually do everything they can to row back, after Jonah tells them that, back to shore. But it's no use. The storm's getting more and more wild. And so they desperately and reluctantly throw Jonah overboard. The irony of the whole situation is that in every way, these non-Christians are better people than the Christian. These non-Christians, they are very careful. Jonah doesn't care that he's endangering the lives of the whole crew by going on that ship. But these non-Christian sailors, they are so reluctant, even though they know Jonah's the problem, they, so, they are so reluctant about uh, ending the life of this one guilty man. In every way possible, they are telling Jonah to pray. They're telling Jonah to repent. They are so careful with his life. In almost every way, these non-Christians are better people than the supposed man of God. You know, one of the ways that God wakes us up is for us to realize that sometimes non-Christian people are better people than we are. Sometimes they are better people than we are. Christians are supposed to be light. We're supposed to be filled with joy. We're supposed to be filled with integrity. We're supposed to be filled with hope. We're supposed to be peacemakers who love the vulnerable and the weak like Ruth did. But so often, non-Christians are better people than Christian people. They are much more advocates for the vulnerable and the weak. They are much more caring for the environment. They are much more sympathetic and patient. So let me ask you a question. If you are surrounded by non-Christians that you work with and go to school with, let me ask you this really real question. Are you a more patient person, a more gracious person, a more joyful person than all the non-Christians that you are surrounded with? Or are you the same? Let me put it even in a starker way. Are you a worse person than them? Are you not as patient, not as understanding, not as joyful, not as hopeful as the non-Christian people around you? You know, what that should do, if you realize it, is that it should wake you up should wake you up that man maybe i'm not as close to god as i thought i was maybe i'm actually spiritually asleep maybe i'm actually running from god's presence that though i might do religious things that my heart is not right with god and god often sends these messengers people around us who might not even be of faith circumstances like the storms of life to wake us up to who god is but here's the final thing 
The final thing that can bring us back to God is for us to realize God's heart of grace and his heart of love. And when you understand that, that's the final thing that can help us come back home. You know, when uh, God's purpose in the storm is not to punish Jonah or the sailors, but actually his purpose in the storm is to bring them back home. And we see that in verse 15. It says, so they picked up Jonah, they hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. It says, then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Jonah is finally hurled into the sea reluctantly, and like a light switch, the storm ceases, just like that, instantly. And there's an eerie silence on that sea, and that all the people, all the sailors realize this is God's work as they hurled Jonah upon the sea. But how do the sailors react? It says in verse 16, they, they did three things. It says they feared the Lord, they made sacrifices to God, the God of the Bible, and they made vows to him. Those are all three hallmarks of someone who has come to faith. It's an incredible idea. Jonah was supposed to be a missionary, but he rebelled against that. He said, God, I'm not going to be a missionary, but he ended up being a missionary anyways. Reluctantly, he told people, these sailors, about who God was. And through that miraculous work of Jonah coming to the sea and the, the storm ceasing, these sailors come to faith. Only God can write a story like that. And God's heart is a heart for these sailors. God sent Jonah into the life so that these non-Christian sailors would be saved. In fact, it's a preview of what God's going to do in Nineveh. God's going to save a city. He wants to save a nation. And God's heart is a heart of compassion, a heart of grace for all nations and all people. Secondly, God's going to rescue Jonah himself. It's through that, we're going to see that next week, that Jonah is brought back into the presence of God. And this whole episode shows us the heart of God, which is a preview of the gospel. The story of Jonah and going into the sea is a preview of Jonah of the gospel because Jonah is a type of Christ. You know, Matthew chapter 12, Jesus is explaining Jonah and himself. And Jesus calls himself a greater than Jonah. It's interesting. It says in Matthew 12, verse 40, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus says, I am greater than Jonah. Even Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. I will be in the depths of the earth for three days and three nights. I will finally resurrect. Jesus says, I'm the greater than Jonah. Jonah went into the heart of the sea, and by that sacrifice of Jonah, the anger and the wrath of God was diminished. It was gone. It was satisfied. And that's a picture of the gospel. Jesus goes to the cross, the greater than Jonah. And at the cross, he takes our anger, our punishment, our pain. And it's because Jesus takes the wrath of God that we're set free, that we're forgiven, that we are right with God. Now we don't have to fear sin and death anymore because God has, Jesus has satisfied those things at the cross. Now we don't have to run from God anymore because we fear him. You know, it's a foolish thing to run from God anyway because I don't know if you knew God is omnipresent. You can't run from God. God is everywhere. You can't outrun. God is faster than you. You cannot outrun God. You cannot outrun him. 
What's the only thing you can do? You can't run from God, so what's the only thing you can do? You can run to him. You can run back to him. And when you run back to God, what you realize is that God is actually not upset at you. He's not angry at you. But God loves you. God's heart bursts with love. That's what the prodigal son realizes when he comes back home. His father is looking for him. His father forgives him. What brings us back into the presence of God is to understand God's heart of grace, his heart of compassion. He will always forgive. He was always loved. That your sin, they are no match for God's grace. Take all of your sins and multiply it by a hundred. Multiply it by a thousand. It's a lot of sins. But guess what? It's no match for God's grace. No matter how far you run, God's grace runs further. God will always love you and accept you. I love this uh, gospel mantra. I call it a gospel mantra, which I think encapsulates all of Jonah chapter 1. This is a gospel mantra I want to explain to you. explains all of Jonah chapter 1. Number one, I'm a complete idiot. But number two, my future is incredibly bright. And number three, anybody can get in on this. Let, let me explain this. Number one says, I'm a complete idiot. And you know, Jonah was an idiot. He tried to outrun God. He endangered the life of everyone on that ship. He was foolish. And you know, one of the go- things the gospel says to you is that we're all, uh, I'm an absolute idiot. You can ask my wife, she agrees with me, that I am a complete idiot. And when you embrace that, it's actually liberating uh, because you don't have to hide anymore. You don't have to hide your, your foolishness anymore, that all of us are foolish. All of us do stupid things, that there's something in us that's desperately broken. And the gospel helps us to first admit that, that I am actually a complete idiot. I do stupid, foolish things. But number two, my future is incredibly bright. That God in, in, in Christ loves me and forgives me. What God's going to do through this whole scenario of, of Jonah rebelling, he's going to turn it all around. He's going to save the sailors through it. He's going to work in Jonah's life. He's going to save a city through this act of rebellion. He's going to tell the world uh, that in Christ I am sinful, but I am so loved. And finally, anyone can get in on this. You know, one of the big themes of Jonah is that God loves the nations. He loves the sailors. He loves Nineveh. It's not just about one people. It's not just about good people, but it's about everybody. You know, if the gospel is for idiots, that includes a whole lot of people. You know, if the only requirement to come to God is that you are broken, that's all of us. The gospel is for everyone, not just for certain groups of people. Anybody can get in on this. You know, and as we close, uh, that is the, the story of the gospel. Where are you this morning? Uh, Do you have a heart that you're just passionately trying to be like God and walk with God and seek the will of God? Or are you spiritually asleep? Are you not pursuing the heart of God? Do you have all kinds of doubt and questions and frustrations and you're just like, forget it. not going to deal with it. Are there sins in your life that you're just not dealing with? You just want to say, wake me up when it's over. I don't want to deal with that anymore. Are you actively running away from the presence of God? trying to get far away from him, even though you might be religious. Well, this morning, God calls you back home. He calls you back home. And he woos you, not with threats, but with his love, 
with his compassion? Would you not run from God? Would you run to him? And see, when you run to him, God's, God's heart bursts with his love and his compassion, which are ours in Christ Jesus, our King. Please join me in prayer. Father, thank you for your unending love for us. And we want to confess that we are more like Jonah than we would care to admit. And there are so many things in our life which are so far, so far from your presence. Forgive us for rebellion. Forgive us for our indifference. Forgive us for all those things that we don't want, we tremble to name. But this morning we want to acknowledge that your grace is way deeper than our rebellion. Your love runs faster than all of our sins. That in Christ, the greater than Jonah, we are forgiven. Pray, God, this morning that we would start a new journey, a journey of faith, a journey of walking with you, a journey of obedience, a journey of sharing this good news to other people. We want to do that. And so we pray that you give us your spirit to work, uh, to make stony hearts become flesh, that rebels would become true followers, uh, that we would uh, lay all of our sins down at the foot of the tree because you placed them there. You died for those sins. Help us to know that sin has no power in us, over us, because they are forgiven, they are up on that tree, and you've overcome it. You've overcome sin and death through the resurrection. So we pray that you would make us good news people, people of hope, and genuine followers of Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.